Part 1 of Careers of Danger and Daring This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirby Bonds Careers of Danger and Daring by Cleveland Moffat The Steeple Climber Part 1 in which we make the acquaintance of Steeple Bob. During the summer months of 1900, what blazing hot months to be sure, people on Lower Broadway were constantly coming upon other people with chins in the air, staring up and exclaiming, Dear me, isn't it wonderful? Or, There's that fellow again. I'm sure he'll break his neck. Then they would pass on and give place to other wanderers. The occasion of this general surprise and apprehension was a tall man dressed entirely in white, who appeared day after day swinging on a little seat far up the side of this or that church steeple, or right at top, hugging the gold cross or weather vane, and still higher, working his way with a queer kicking, hitching movement up various hundred-foot flagpoles that rise from the heaven-challenging office buildings down near Wall Street. At these perilous altitudes he would hang for hours, shifting his ropes occasionally, raising his swing or lowering it, but not doing anything that his sidewalk audience could see very well or clearly understand. Yet thousands watched him with fascination, and a Kodak army descended upon neighboring housetops and newspapers followed the movements of Steeple Bob in thrilling chronicles. That is what he was called in large black letters at the head of columns, Steeple Bob. But I came to know him at his modest quarters on Lexington Avenue, where he was plain Mr. Merrill, a serious-mannered and unpretentious young man, very fond of his wife and his dog, very fond of spending evenings over books of adventure, and quite indifferent to his daytime notoriety. I call him a young man, yet in years of service, not in age, he is the oldest steeple-climber in the business. Ever since his teacher, Steeple Charlie, fell from his swing some years ago in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and died the steeple-climber's death. I often saw books of the sea on Merrill's table, and accounts of whaling voyages, and he told me one evening, while through an open door came the snores of his weary partner, about his own adventurous boyhood with three years cruising in Uncle Sam's Navy on the school ships Minnesota and Yanktik. He shipped at the age of twelve, and two years at whale-fishing in the North Sea. Quite ideal training, this, for a steeple-climber. He learned to handle ropes and make them fast so they would stay fast. He learned to climb and keep his head at the top of a swaying masthead. He learned to bear exposure as lads must who are washed on deck every morning with a hose, and stand for inspection, winter and summer, bare to the waist. And he gains strength of arm and back-swinging at the oar, while whale lines strained on the sunk harpoon, and patience with long stern chases, and nerve when some stricken monster lashed the waters in agony, and the boat danced on a reddened sea. Merrill laughed about the climb up Old Trinity Spire, the first climb when he carried up the hauling rope and worked his way clear to the cross, 
with nothing to help him but the hands and feet he was born with, and did it coolly, while men on the street below turned away sickened with fear for him. "'I'm telling you the truth,' said Steeple Bob, "'when I say it was an easy climb, any fairly active man could do it if he'd forget the height. I'm not talking about all steeples. Some are hard and dangerous, but the one on Trinity, in spite of its three hundred odd feet, has knobs of stone for ornament all the way up. They call them corbels. And all you have to do is step from one to another. Well, how much of a step? Oh, when I stood on one, the next one came to my breast, and then I could just touch the one above that. He called this easy climbing. The only ticklish bit was just at the top, where two great stones, weighing about a ton apiece, swell out like an apple on a stick, and I had to crawl around and over that apple, which was four feet or so across. If it hadn't been for grooves and scrollwork in the stone, I couldn't have done it. Even as it was, I had two or three minutes of hard wriggling after I kicked off with my feet and began pulling myself up. You mean you hung by your hands from this big ball of stone? I hung mostly by my fingers. The scrolls weren't deep enough for my hands to go in. And you drew yourself slowly up and around and over that ball? Certainly. That was the only way. And it was at the very top? Yes, just under the cross. Wasn't much, though. You could do it yourself. I really think Merrill believed this. He honestly saw no particular danger in that climb, nor could I discover that he ever saw any particular danger in anything he had done. He always made the point that if he had really thought about the thing dangerous, he wouldn't have done it. And I conclude from this that being a steeple climber depends quite as much upon how a man thinks as upon what he can do. A funny thing happened, he added. After I got over this hard place, I slid into a V-shaped place between the bulging stone and the steeple shaft, and I lay there on my back for a minute or so, resting. But when I started to raise myself, I found my weight had worked me down into the crotch and jammed me fast, and it was quite a bit of time before I could get free. How much time? A minute? Yes, five minutes, and it seemed a good deal longer. Five minutes struggling in a sort of stone trap, stretched out helpless at the very top of a steeple, where one false move could mean destruction. That is what Merrill spoke of as a funny thing. Thanks, I thought. I'll take my fun some other way, and lower down. You'd be surprised, he went on, to feel the movement of a steeple. It trembles all the time, and answers every jar on the street below. I guess old Trinity's steeple sways eighteen inches every time an elevated train passes. And St. Paul's is even worse. Why, she rocks like a beautifully balanced cradle. It would make some people seasick. Perhaps you don't know it. But the better a steeple is built the more she sways. You want to look out for the ones that stand rigid. 
There's something wrong with them. Most likely they're out of plumb. Isn't there a danger, I ask, that a steeple may get swaying too much, say in a gale, and go clear over? Gale or not, said Merrill, a well-made steeple must rock in the wind, same as a tree rocks. That's the way it takes the storm, by yielding to it. If it didn't yield, it would probably break. While the great shaft of the Washington Monument sways four or five feet when the wind blows hard. Then he explained that modern steeples are built with a steel backbone, if I may so call it, running down from the top for many feet inside the stonework. At Trinity, for instance, this backbone, known as a dowel, is four inches thick and forty-five feet long, a great steel mass stretching down through the cross, down inside the heavy stones and ornaments, and ending in massive beams and braces, where the steeple's greater width gives it full security. "'What sort of work did you do on these steeples?' I asked. "'All kinds. Stonemason work, painter's work, blacksmith work, carpenter work. Why, it's a good steeple-climber has to know something about most every trade. It's painting flagpoles and scraping off shale from steeple sides, and repairing loose stones and ornaments, and putting up lightning rods and gilding crosses, and cleaning smokestacks so high that it makes you dizzy to look up, let alone look down, and a dozen other things. Sometimes we have to take a whole steeple down, beginning at the top, stone by stone, unless it's a wooden steeple, and then we burn her down five or six feet at a time, with creosote painted around where you want the fire to stop. Creosote puts it out. Once I blew off the whole top of a steeple with dynamite, and by the way, I'll, I'll tell you about that sometime. Conversing with a steeple climber, when he feels like telling things, is like breathing oxygen. You find it overstimulating. In ten minutes, matter-of-fact talking, he opens so many vistas of thrilling interest that you stand before them bewildered. He starts to answer one question, and you burn to interrupt him with ten others, each of which will lead you hopelessly away from the remaining nine. D did you ever have any experience with lightning? I asked Merrill one day. Oh, a few, he said. A thunderbolt struck the Trinity steeple the very day we finished our work. We had just taken down our tackle and staging after gilding the cross when— By the way, they say there's a hundred dollars in gold under that cross— Really? I exclaimed. How did it get there? Somebody ordered it put there when the steeple was built. People often do queer things like that. I painted a flagpole on a barn up in Massachusetts where there were four hundred dollars in gold hidden under the weather vane. Everybody knew it was there, because the farmer who put it there told everybody. And my partner was crazy to saw off the end of that pole at some night and fool him. But of course, I wouldn't have it. Here I was quite off my thunderbolt trail. Although curious about that farmer, I came back to it resolutely. Well, resumed Merrill, this lightning stroke came down the new rod all right until it reached the bell deck, and there it circled around and around the steeple four or five times, wrapping my assistant in bluish-white flame. Then it took a long jump straight down Wall Street smashed a flagpole to slivers, and vanished. Say, 
There are things about lightning I've never heard explained. I know a steeple climber, for instance, who was killed by lightning. Must have been lightning, although no one saw it strike. There were two of them working on a scaffold when a thunderstorm came up, and this man's partner started to the ground, as climbers with any sense always do. But this fellow was lazy or out of sorts or something, and he said he wouldn't go down. He'd stay on the steeple until the storm was over. He didn't stay there without getting any harm, so far as anybody on the ground could see except a wedding. Just the same, when his partner went up again, he found him stretched out on the scaffolding, dead. Frightened to death? I suggested. Merrill shook his head. No, they said it was lightning, but it's queer how lightning could kill a man without being seen, isn't it? Then Merrill gave me an experience of his own, with a thunderbolt. It was during this same busy summer of 1900, while he and his partner were scraping the great steel smokestack that rises from the ground to roof alongside of the American Track Society building, that towering structure which looks down with contempt, no doubt, up on ordinary church steeples. We were in our saddles, Merrill explained, swung down about two-thirds of the smokestack's length when some black clouds warned us of danger, and we hauled ourselves up to the roof. My partner, Walter Ty, got off his saddle and stood there where my wife was waiting. She often goes to climbing jobs with me. She's less anxious when she can watch me. But I thought the storm was passing over and kept on scraping, sort of half resting on the cornice, half on the saddle. Suddenly a bolt shot down from a little pink cloud just overhead and splintered a big flagpole I had just put halyards on, then jumped past us all so close that it knocked Walter over and made me sick and giddy so that I fell back limp on my saddleboard and swung there helpless until my wife pulled the trip rope that opens the lock block and drew me in from the ledge. That's not the first time she's been on a deck at the right minute. Once she came up a steeple to tell me something, and found the hauling line smoldering from my helper's cigarette. If that line had burned through, it would have dropped me to the ground from the steeple top. Saddle, lock block, and all. The man with the cigarette was so scared he quit smoking for good and all. Here, in reply to my question, Merrill explained the working of a lock block, which is simply a pulley that allows a rope to pass through it but will not let it go back. With this block, the steeple climber can be hauled up easily, but cannot fall, even if the man hauling should let go the rope. When it is necessary to descend, a pull on the trip rope releases the safety catch, and the saddle goes down. Do steeple climbers always work in pairs? I ask him. Usually, it'd be hard for one man to do a steeple alone. There are lots of places where you must have someone to fasten a rope or hold the end of a plank or pass you something. Besides, it wouldn't be good for a man's mind to be spending all day and days upon a steeple all alone. It's bad enough with a partner to talk to. That makes me think of poor old Dan O'Brien. If I hadn't been up with him one day, Merrill, Merrill checked himself and changed the subject. I'll give you a case where a man alone could never have done the thing. I don't care how clever a steeple climber he might be. 
It was on St. Paul's, New York. After we had finished the job and taken everything down, then somebody noticed that the weather vane on top of the ball wasn't turning properly. I knew in a minute what the matter was. It was easy enough to fix it, but the thing was to reach the weather vane. I didn't mean that the climb up the steeple was anything. We had done that before. But if I tried to climb around that big ball again, it was, it was the same sort of wriggling business as that over the bulging stones at Trinity. I would be sure to scrape off a lot of the fine gilding we had just put on, and yet I couldn't get at the weather vane without getting over the ball. I studied quite a bit on this little problem, and I solved it with my partner's help. We both climbed the steeple as far as the ball. We went up the lightning rod, and then we roped ourselves on the steeple shaft by lifelines. Then my partner, that was Joe Lawler, stood on my shoulders and did the job. You see, it was easy enough that way. Easy enough? Think of it. Two men clinging to the point of a steeple. One of them braces himself with the toes of his rubber shoes and crannies of the stone, and the other, balancing on his shoulders like a circus performer, does a piece of work, no matter what, with a reeling abyss all around. What is looking over a precipice compared to this? And all the time the spire swaying back and forth like a forest tree. Then you hear that instead of getting a large sum of, for such achievement, these men, taking it through the year, get scarcely more than ordinary workmen's wages. End of section 1